Thank you, praise team. Church, please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel, if you will. 2 Samuel in chapter 2. You received an email this week from uh, me, but really from our children's director search team sharing uh, a plan that we would like to put before you to change the structure of our children's ministry leadership. We're so grateful for Melissa Raleigh, who has been serving as our interim children's director, and she is excited about continuing to serve in the part-time capacity of children's director. And then, of course, you saw in the letter that uh, the committee is very excited about uh, Lily Everett serving in the part-time assistant children's director role. Uh, we'll have a special call business meeting to talk about, to approve, to affirm that restructure on August 30th at 6.30 down in the Fellowship Hall. So if you have questions, you can bring them or you can talk to anyone on the committee. They were listed in that, um, in that email or you could talk to me about it beforehand. But we're excited about what God is providing for us. Second Samuel 2 and 3 today is where we will be looking at in God's word. You know, by God's grace, America has, for the most part, experienced peaceful transfers of power from one president to the next throughout our history, and we are grateful for that. But that's not true everywhere. In many countries, when a new regime comes to power, there is violence or there is a dramatic shift of values and, frankly, uh, a whole new way of life for the people who live under that Regime. This was the case in, in well-documented and well-known situations like Vladimir Lenin of the Soviet Union, Muammar Gaddafi of Libya, Pol Pot of Cambodia, and of course Fidel Castro of Cuba. And I've spoken with many Cubans over the years about the transfer from Batista to Castro in 1959. Now, in, in a matter of days, everything changed for the Cuban people. And I'm not trying to say that everything was perfect under Batista's power, but Castro aligned himself with the Soviet Union and their socialist and communist regime, and life would never again be the same for the average Cuban. Freedoms were gone. Bibles were confiscated and burned. Loyalty to Castro was paramount, and it was enforced by his own hit squad led by Che Guevara. And since... Miguel Diaz-Canel came to power in 2018, things really haven't changed much for the Cuban people, not much better for the average Cuban. We have a lot to be thankful for in America. When a new president or a new governor or a new mayor or some other elected official comes to power, there are limits to how far and how fast things can change, how things can move. And while we all understand that our government and our People are divided right now between the right and the left, and neither side would claim that they're satisfied with where things are. People, for the most part, are free to do what we want to do, no matter who's in office. Well, transfers of power have been part of civilization for thousands and thousands of years. In biblical times, there are recorded multiple transfers of power, multiple conquests, and multiple wars. This morning, as we continue in 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see the beginning of a transfer of power from one kingdom to the next as we look to various kingdom matters. And I want us to see how to live in the kingdom of the anointed king. 
how we are to live in the kingdom of the anointed king. Would you stand? We'll read the first 11 verses of 2 Samuel in chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahanoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone in his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabeth-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabeth-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. And therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanim. And he made him king over Gilead, and of the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ish-bosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over, his house, over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are gathered because we desperately want to hear from you this morning. We have, we have celebrated, we have worshipped, we have humbled ourselves, we have declared your goodness and your sovereignty. We have recognized your kingship, and now, Lord, we recognize that unless you move right now, unless your spirit speaks to us right now, then nothing of consequence will take place in these next several minutes. So, God, would you be gracious to us yet again and speak to us, and change us, and cause us to follow you with all that we are as we live in your kingdom, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we saw the Amalekite bring to David the, David the crown and the armlet of the deceased King Saul. And while things didn't end well for that Amalekite, there was at least a general understanding amongst the people that David was to be the next king. Right? David had been chosen as the next king by God himself and anointed by Samuel as the next king, the one who would rule over God's people in God's kingdom here on earth. Years had passed, right? Difficult and trying years, but it seems, as we've noticed in the past, in last week and then at the end of 1 Samuel, that things were kind of coming together for David's rule. And we're not sure how much time had passed since David lamented the, the death of Saul and Jonathan, but here as we begin in chapter 2, it seems that David is ready to move back to his home, cutting ties with the Philistines at what was his city, a burned city, at Ziklag. And in the kingdom of the Lord, the first thing that we see is it's always important to seek the Lord. Always seek the Lord. 
On two occasions, as you know, in 1 Samuel, David had an opportunity to kill King Saul. He could have snuck up and killed King Saul, but both times he chose not to take matters into his own hands, but to wait upon the Lord. Here we see David essentially asking, now, Lord, is it time? Is it time for me to go? So with deference, David asked the Lord if he should return to any of the cities of Judah, and if so, which one? He's seeking the Lord. Now, it's clear that David didn't want to move forward except at the Lord's will. And the Lord God makes his will very clear. He tells David to go to Hebron. Friends, in the kingdom of the Lord, it is our privilege... And it is our responsibility to seek the Lord's will always. We're always to seek the Lord's will. Consider how Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we pray in such a way, we are admitting that God's ways are best, that we desire God's ways, that we want to seek his will, that we want to be close to him. Now, let's not forget, Saul was rejected as king of Israel because he did not want God's ways. He wanted his own ways. He was not concerned with God's kingdom. He was concerned with his own kingdom and his own time frame. So in humbling ourselves and seeking the Lord, we're showing deference to the true king of the true kingdom. We ask questions like, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do with my time? What do you want me to do with my resources? God, what relationships do you want me to invest in? How can I best serve? How can I best help? In what ways, God, can I bring you most glory from my life? Friends, these are questions that we should be asking God on a regular basis. And I believe that if we are genuinely seeking the Lord and genuinely humbling ourselves and asking God these questions, then he's going to give us an answer. Sometimes God's answers are very clear from scripture, right? They're just clear. We read them in scripture and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is God's will for us. Sometimes God can reveal his will through the counsel of others or even through circumstances. It may be that God reveals his will through strong impressions in your life, but let me just say this. We have to be careful there. Our subjective feelings are never an authority over our own lives. We have to be careful in there. In fact, I, I know a person who recently made a huge decision because this person was convinced this was God's will. But I question that decision. Why? Because it's clear that leading up to that decision, this person was not following Scripture, was not following God's will, even though she subjectively believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was God's will will. So here's the thing. When we recognize that we are citizens of God's kingdom, we'll seek the Lord. When we recognize that God is king and we are in his kingdom, then we will seek the Lord. We'll bend our wills 
and our desires to his will and to his desires. Too often, friends, I'm concerned that just like King David, we make too many decisions based, excuse me, like King Saul, that we make too many decisions based on our own desires or our own wants or our own wisdom, and we fail to humble ourselves. We fail to seek the will of God. We fail to search out scripture. We fail to seek godly counsel. And we just go with whatever our gut tells us, whatever our appetite tells us in that moment, and it's dangerous. But in the kingdom of the Lord, we are always to seek his will. Secondly, in the kingdom of the Lord, we should expect God to work. We should expect God to work his will. In his kingdom, God is working his will. Now, verse four is significant. David is moved to Hebron, and then in verse 4, we see that David is anointed the king over the tribe of Judah. The elders, the leaders of the tribe of Judah, they come to David and they say, we want you to be king over us. You are now king over us. And there it is. It's the beginning of David's kingdom. It's not over all of Israel yet, but it's a start. It's only over the house of Judah. It starts out small, but friends, God is not finished God does what he says he will do. He always does what he says he will do. And because God keeps his promises, and because God is all-powerful, and because God is sovereign over all creation, we should expect him to work his will. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 27, we read, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Job confesses in chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things, speaking of the Lord, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Friends, it shouldn't surprise us that the beginning of David's kingdom starts out small, for Jesus teaches us similarly concerning the kingdom of God. And remember this, David is a type. He is a pointer. He is the anointed, but he is not the ultimate anointed one. He is a pointer, a type showing us or leading us or pointing us in the direction of King Jesus, the son of David who sits on the throne of God forever. And I want you to hear what Jesus says in the parable of the mustard seed, Mark chapter four, verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Do you see that? It starts out small. The kingdom of God starts out small, but it ultimately overtakes everything. And Jesus began with 12 followers. And it grew, and then on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 disciples gathered together waiting for the promised spirit who would descend. And there they were waiting after Jesus' ascension, and then the day of Pentecost, and the spirit comes, and they're filled with the spirit. 120 disciples gathered a moment. It starts small, but now, friends, it's growing, and it continues to grow, and soon the kingdom of God will be over all things. John Calvin writes, the earthly reign of David is a token in which we must contemplate the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the salvation of his church to the end of the world. In Jesus' conversation with his disciples in Matthew in chapter 16, he's asking his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And you'll recall that Peter says to them, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, blessed are you, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you this, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the promise of God. This is the building of the kingdom of God and it will overrule everything else. And friends, this is solid encouragement for us, isn't it? For as citizens of his kingdom, this is solid encouragement for us. We don't lose hope because his kingdom is overall. And it's solid encouragement for us to engage in evangelism, right? Because we are called to proclaim Christ and make disciples. And we can be certain that God will work his will and work his will according to his perfect wisdom. And we know that his will is to save all those whom the Father has given to Jesus. John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. And since faith comes through hearing the gospel, let's proclaim the gospel clearly and boldly. And we know that it's God's will for his children to grow in holiness, to be made more like Jesus. So let's be a people who values truth, who pursues holiness, and trust that God will finish the work that he has begun in our lives. May it drive us to prayerfulness. May it drive us to faithfulness because, friends, God will work his will. Well, third, as members of God's kingdom, we must exercise wisdom towards outsiders. We must exercise wisdom towards outsiders, right? David is the anointed king of Judah. And then immediately we're told that he, that he is told by others that it was the people of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. Now, if you, if you think back a little ways, you'll recall that the tribe of Jabesh Gilead was associated with the tribe of Benjamin. They would have been loyal to Saul. Even still, David reaches out to them and shows kindness to them for their kind act of burying Saul. He blesses them and he promises to do good to them. But the question is why? Why did David extend this kindness to them? He wasn't their king yet. In fact, it could be argued that they were even his enemies at this point. Well, at one level, this is a shrewd political move, right? David was ultimately wanting to unite these kingdoms together, so he wanted to be kind and gracious, and there was a political value to this. If David could get these people on board, then that would go a long way. But at a greater level, friends, David is pointing us to the ultimate king, to King Jesus, who showed and who shows kindness to all his enemies. When we were his enemies, Jesus died for us. When we rebelled against God's will and rebelled against God's ways, when we prioritized our own agendas, God died for us. Jesus died for us. And even still, as believers, as followers, when we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we confess our sin to him. David is pointing us to the greater king, to the great king, to
to Jesus. Now, in the same way that David exercised wisdom toward the people of Jabesh-Gilead, as followers of King Jesus, we must exercise wisdom when it comes to outsiders, when it comes to those who are outside of the covenant of grace, when it comes to those who are far from Jesus Christ. I want you to listen in Colossians in chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So what does that mean? Paul is talking about our conduct, how we live, how we walk, how we behave, how we live our lives before those who are not yet in Jesus Christ. Now certainly this would include living in integrity and without hypocrisy. Why? Because when professing Christians live in unrepentant sin, live sinful lives, this turns non-believers away from Jesus. But it also includes moving away from self-righteous judgmentalism and a holier-than-thou attitude. Friends, hear this. Anytime we put more confidence in our own behavior, in our own goodness, than we do in the grace of God, we can easily push non-believers away. Why do you think the populace love to hear Jesus so much? Why did they receive Jesus so much differently than the religious leaders. Do you think it was because Jesus was watering down the truth? No, of course not. Jesus didn't water down the truth. Instead, he spoke the truth in a way that people who heard it felt loved and cared for. And by the way, we shouldn't expect non-believers to act like believers. They can't. They don't have the spirit of God compelling them, changing them, breaking them from sin tendencies. Instead, we ought to point them to truth, pray for them, and show kindness to non-believers. Exercising wisdom towards outsiders also means that we are intentional about how and when we engage them in truth. Graciously speaking the gospel and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Look, we could have lots of non-believing friends. We could have lots of non-believers in our circles And we should show kindness and grace and love to them. But if we never share the gospel with them and we never point them to truth, then we're not really loving them. We're just not. When you survey your relationships, how might you transition conversations and transition relationships in such a way that starts to focus more on the hope that is found on Jesus Christ rather than just the things that you share in common with them. Fourth, as members of God's kingdom, be ready for opposition. As members of God's kingdom, be ready for opposition. Now in verses 8 and through 11, we have Abner, the commander of Saul's army, making Ish-bosheth, one of Saul's sons, the next king of Israel. Now already we might be wondering, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Wasn't David supposed to be the next king? And what we see here is a counterfeit kingdom. As one loyal to Saul, Abner was opposing David and opposing the Lord God. In fact, 
Abner knew that the Lord had plans for David. He knew that David was going to be the anointed one. In fact, he even admits this to King Ishbosheth in chapter 3 and verse 9 when he gets offended at the king's accusations against Abner. Now, the rest of chapter 2 highlights the conflict between these two kingdoms. In verses 12 through 16, we, we, we read of Abner's offensive against the tribe of Judah and the army that was led by Joab. What began as a sort of competition turns into a tragedy where 12 members from each army are killed kind of simultaneously in this, in this event. Now, there was a lady named Zeruah. She had three sons. The three sons uh, here as are, are listed. Joab is one of them. We continue on and, and we see that uh, he had two other brothers and when they move in this direction, when they begin this assault and after these 12 from each side died, the brothers begin to chase after Ahashel, runs after this Abner, the, the leader of Ishbaphis army. And he, he pursues him and, and Abner's like, stay away, don't come, what are you doing? Stay away from here. Well, ultimately he ends up killing him. So now Joab's brother is dead and Joab's gonna have a little vendetta going on in his own mind. And things were about to come to an end, but then finally Abner says, what are we doing? Why are we fighting? Let's, let's just break this up. Let's call this off in the moment. So if we read in the last verse of chapter two, we see that they broke up that day and they were not to fight again that day. Of course, the peace was short-lived because when we read in chapter three and verse one, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now, David's kingdom kept getting stronger while Saul's kingdom kept getting weaker. And friends, this too points us to the kingdom of God. There is one true kingdom and there is one true king. And his name is Jesus. And there will always be opposition to the king of righteousness. And this opposition comes from counterfeit kings and counterfeit kingdoms. And the world rages against Jesus. The forces of darkness are opposed to the kingdom of light and those who, who, who have yet to bow the knee and put their faith in Jesus find themselves fighting against truth and opposing King Jesus. According to scripture, friends, everyone in this room enters this world on the wrong side of the battle. In Ephesians in chapter 2, we read that we are sinners by nature and sinners by choice and enslaved to sin and fighting against God and fighting against righteousness. But it's not just individual sinners. It's the whole world system that is opposed to truth and righteousness. Satan and his army of demons seek to keep sinners entrapped in their sin making sin seem so enticing. Friends, that's why Hollywood is so profitable because so much trash that comes out of Hollywood is what we entertain with our, ourselves with and this makes it seem so enticing. I was shocked to see the backlash against the movie The Sound of Freedom when it came out back in the month of July. I was appalled to hear the comments that were made as if making light of the whole uh, sin of sex trafficking but that's how the kingdom of darkness works it wants to protect itself it wants to belittle people who seek righteousness and follow truth and it wants to promote sin 
at all costs. And while it seems like the kingdom of darkness may have had the upper hand, in the end, the kingdom of God will win. Our king has no rivals, and he puts all things under his feet. So church, as you live for King Jesus, expect opposition. Expect people to treat you unfairly. Expect trials and difficulties, and pray. And pray that the fullness of God's kingdom will come, and that his will will be done on earth. Well, in an odd twist of events, chapter 3 records Abner's switch of loyalties and his movement towards King David. Now, Abner was a feared person, right? He was the commander of Saul's army. And he's the one who set up Ishbosheth as the new king of Israel, minus the tribe of Judah. So he was a loyalist. He was all in with Saul's army and Saul's kingdom. Saul's now dead. He, he was going to promote this guy, Ishbosheth, one of the sons, and but in an odd twist, he now begins to change his loyalties over to King David. What prompted that? Well, in chapter three, three we read that Ishbosheth accused Abner of taking advantage of one of the late, his late father, Saul's concubines. And Abner becomes furious with Ishbosheth. Let me just read in chapter three, verses eight through 11. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord had sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom of from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So now Abner is switching his loyalty. He's moving over towards David. He recognized all along that God had promised David the kingdom, yet he fought against it in his own heart because he wanted to secure his own position. So through some messengers, Abner reaches out to David and offers David his services. And Abner is certain that he can deliver the leaders of the people of Israel to David and unite the tribes under David's kingship. And after some discussion, David sends Abner away in peace. And all seemed well and good until Joab got word of it. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, and it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and the king has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and you are going out and you're coming in to know all that you are doing. Now, at this point, Joab chases down Abner without David's knowledge and tricks him into a conversation and then Joab kills Abner. So the question is, was Joab just seeking revenge for his brother's death, perhaps? 
Was Joab afraid that Abner Alton was going to take over Joab's position as leader of the army? Perhaps. But notice how Joab sets the stage for what he's about to do. Don't you know, David, that Abner's just trying to trick you? You shouldn't have done this. He's trying to deceive you. Abner may have thought he was serving King David. He may have thought that what he was doing was necessary. That said, the flow of the narrative makes it seems otherwise. Make it seems otherwise. Joab comes across as a man driven by revenge and as one protecting his own position and serving his own kingdom. Church, as followers of Christ, we are to serve the king in righteousness. We're to serve the king in righteousness. Certainly this means following what he says, but it also means having the right motives as we follow what he says. Too often people can be guilty of doing the right things with the wrong motives. That was the problem with the religious leaders. Right? They did a lot of the right things. They said their prayers. They gave their alms. They were in the temple or the tabernacles. And they were seeking the scripture. But Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that they did it all for show. They did it just so they could be seen by others. They were managing their image. They weren't truly seeking the one true and living God. So their actions were not flowing out of hearts that loved the Lord God with all that they were. I wonder how often we obey, but not with the right motives. Not because we love God with all that we are, but simply because we want to look good in front of others or we just want to stay out of trouble. See, Joab was dead wrong in his actions. And David made the mistake of not punishing Joab, even though his subsequent actions would prove that he did not agree with Joab's treachery here. Church, we are to serve the king in righteousness. We are to do that which we know to be right and good. We can't justify our sin in the name of serving the king as Joab did. Let's be the church that loves truth, that daily lives according to truth for the glory of the true king, for the glory of our God. And that means we serve for the glory of God and we serve for the good of others. That means we give for the glory of God and we give for the good of others. That means we live in righteousness, not because you think you can earn God's favor, but because God has shown you his favor and he has lavished his grace upon you. Friends, David's kingdom started out small, ruling just one tribe. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see that his kingdom would expand and he would be the greatest king in all of Israel's history. That said, David was a sinner. And we'll see a lot of his mistakes as we continue this study. See, he was, the never, he was never the ultimate anointed one. That title goes to Jesus. Jesus, the one who is fully God and fully man. The one who is the conquering king, yet laid down his life for sinners like you and me. The one who rose from the dead on the third day, 
the one who lives victoriously forever and rules the kingdom of God forever. Today, you can know the forgiveness of God. You can know eternal life if you will confess your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Friends, we're here to connect with you about that if you are not yet trusting in Jesus. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray. We're going to have a time of response. If you have questions about the text, if you have questions about the gospel, how you can know eternal life, how you can know forgiveness of sin, come talk to us at the front. Maybe you just need prayer. We're here to pray with you. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe you're here with someone today that you know to be a follower of Christ and you just want to ask them how you can know salvation. They would love to connect with you. They would love to pray with you. They would love to be able to have that opportunity for that conversation. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your great love and your kindness. Thank you for your mercy, which is new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. Today, Lord, we see in your word that that to live as citizens of your kingdom means that we follow you closely, that we seek after you, that we expect that you will work your will. God, that we live in righteousness. Give us grace to do those things. Lord, may we be men and women and boys and girls who love your word, and who follow it closely. And may we be those who understand our commissioning and who embrace our empowering, Lord, by your Spirit so that we would proclaim Christ and make disciples. God, do these things in us for your glory. Do these things in us that your kingdom would advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand as we sing?